Let's pray. Lord God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You have made us. You have bought us. You have redeemed us. You have adopted us. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us each other. We gather as your people, as your bride, as your flock. We pray that you would give us grace now. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We pray that we would behold your glory and seeing glory, we might be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Just one or two brief announcements this morning. As many of you know, Henrietta Huss went home to be with the Lord Friday morning, last Friday morning around 11 a.m. There will be a funeral here at the church this Tuesday. We're going to send an email out um, in about an hour or so. At 2.30 on Tuesday, a supper at 5 p.m., and the visitation is at which funeral home? Overton. Overton's from? Three. Three? Three. And that will all be going out in an email shortly. Um, so we, uh, we encourage you to gather and, and encourage the family and celebrate uh, the testimony of God's grace. Also, our annual budget meeting, the most exciting activity of the church, is coming up shortly on September 29th. But it is indeed, it's, it's good. I think it's, I think it's appropriate for us to be transparent with how we spend money, open to your questions. This is the only time, though, that it'll be gone through line by line. And so if that interests you, if that's something you want to know about, you can come to that meeting. The budget's been posted. There are extra copies by the mailboxes. If this is your first time visiting us or your first time in a long time, or if you have any prayer requests or needs, you can fill this out and drop that in the offering bucket on your way out so that we can get in contact with you or, or try to meet some prayer needs you have. Let's return now to the worship of the Lord in song. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open them to Ephesians chapter 5. You can find the insert um, in the bulletin, or if you're viewing online, with a a link below on our website. And this morning, we will pick up our study of Ephesians chapter 5 that we paused three weeks ago. Three weeks ago was when we were last here, and we were looking at Paul's instruction to husbands, and we got through the first half of it, and then I came down with covid And then um, we detoured last week to look at Psalm 20, and now we will return um, with the mystery of marriage. So I'll remind you a little bit of the section we're in in Ephesians. It's been a few weeks. The first three chapters of Ephesians, if you remember, Paul lays out divine gospel truth about what Jesus Christ has done for us, how he has redeemed us, how we've been made alive, we've been sealed by his Spirit We have been gifted. And then starting in chapter 4, how to live, gospel living, coming out of those truths begins. That that distinction is critical. If we were to simply dive into Ephesians 5 and the household code, you might end up with moralism. But rather, in light of the gospel indicatives, these are gospel imperatives. Because of what God has done, because we're forgiven, because we're alive, because we are redeemed. This is how we live. It's not how we live to become redeemed. That distinction is also critical. 
And we began a section that I've called the household code. Paul's going to look at three pairs of relationships. The instruction, the ethical instruction in chapters 4 and 5, primarily dealing with one another's. Ways we're to interact regardless of who we're interacting with. So, for instance, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 425, is true whether you're in a household, whether you're talking to someone older than you, younger than you. It's just true for the body. This is how we are to relate to one another. We're not to steal from each other. But now we're getting into relationship-specific instructions with these three pairings. We have husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants or slaves and masters. Those are the three pairings we're going to look at. And in each instance, Paul has instruction for both parties. And we spend a week considering the implications, not only that you're going to have instructions for yourself at least in one place or possibly more in this list, but... Paul intends for everyone else to hear it. It can be popular these days to take these types of instructions and peel them off. We'll have a men's seminar. We'll have a woman's seminar, a single's seminar. And there can be some merit or use to such things. But here, Paul is giving instructions to each group in the hearing of everyone else. It's important that wives hear the instructions for husbands. It's important that children hear the instructions for wives and vice versa. There's a sense of mutual accountability there's a sense of equality in, in, in the address here. No one, even as in these various relationships, some people will take leadership, some people will be submissive, they're spoken to equally. There is an equality and a dignity given here. And so this section, starting in actually really in verse 22 through the end of chapter 5, is one unit. He'll speak to the wives, he'll speak to the husbands, but you see at the verse 33, he speaks to both husbands and wives. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So really, it's a unit. And we're going to hopefully finish that up this morning. And so, by way of review, the instruction for the wife is fundamentally one. It's difficult, but it's straightforward. To submit to her own husband. It's not the submission of all women to all men. Wives, submit to your own husbands. We talked about that as the voluntarily ordering of yourself under the authority of another. It's the voluntary yielding of your will to the will of another. And that submission is not arbitrary, but rather it's meant to imitate something in the gospel. And that's important. In all these relationships, Paul's going to give theological rather than pragmatic reasoning. He's not first and foremost arguing, do this because it's going to give you the best marriage. I think it will give you the best marriage. But he's saying, do this because Christ has done something. Do this because the church does something. And that that makes it something we dare not tamper with, even if our culture thinks we've found some better ways to do things, which I don't think we actually have. But even if the argument was put forward, it's immaterial. The gospel has not changed. Christ's relationship to the church has not changed. Therefore, what we must imitate and picture and image has not changed. In response, when we looked at husbands three weeks ago, the fundamental command is to love. It's repeated in this passage. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself. But we need to let the Bible inform what love means. Our culture fundamentally considers love as an act of the emotions. 
Um, we speak about being drunk with love, or, or we fall in love. It's this powerful emotional force. And emotions are part of the picture of biblical love, but as we've seen them, that's not really where the emphasis lay so far in our study. The type of love that Paul describes, because he goes on to describe it, right? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a sacrificial serving love. And we looked at that three weeks ago. Christ died as a ransom on the cross for his bride. And then Christ serves his bride, sanctifying and cleansing her. You could almost call this a shepherding love, a serving love, a health-bringing love as Christ makes his bride beautiful. That's the way husbands are to love their wives this morning, the command still stays as love, but now new nuances are brought up. There's two fundamental imageries that Paul uses. They're interconnected, but you can see in the first section, verses 25 through, I don't know, 28a, the primary image is of Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives that way, sacrificially, self-giving, cleansing, serving, sanctifying, beautifying. And even though Christ is still the model, now another image gets brought in, and that is loving your wife as your own body. Loving your wife as your own body. So I'd like to begin, before we dive into that first point, by reading our passage this morning, having a word of prayer, and then we will dive in and look at the mystery of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and see that the wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh, Lord God. Help us to see, first, with greater clarity, how your Son has served and loved his church. How the Lord Jesus Christ serves and loves us. And those of us who are husbands, Lord, help us to see that and imitate that. And Lord... Help everyone here understand that you have a word for them in this, that you intend for them to hear these things as well. Would that our marriages might image the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would that we would take part in making that a reality. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this passage in three points. The first, husbands, love your wife as your own body. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. That's just the text, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, oh, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, verse 28 begins within the same way. This is linking. Even though I'm seeing different um, emphases in this section, it's one section. 
And then the same way goes back to verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, it may be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ not only gives himself up for the church, he's not done serving his bride. He's only begun. He then sets about the task that he's doing in our lives right now, sanctifying us. He's cleansing us. He's determined not only to redeem his bride, but to sanctify and make her beautiful. The pictures of a husband and all the, we know, all the work that goes into a bride preparing for her wedding day. All the many hours and all the attendance and all the help to beautify her. There's something good about that. That's a day to display her beauty. Well, Christ is doing that for his bride. And then we get in the same way, husbands should love their wives. And now the second comparison, as their own bodies, is brought in. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So we've got to talk now again about some more misconceptions. Because what we're to deal with here is self-love in this section, right? Look at the very next phrase. He who loves his wife loves himself. And even in verse 33, let each of you love his wife as himself. Now, when the Bible talks about self-love, it does not mean what most people today mean by self-love. Most people, since the, the revolution of, of self-esteem, take self-love to mean self-regard, a positive self-view, Um, something along those lines. And so to love yourself is to think well of yourself, to be at peace with yourself, to be content with yourself. And people who are not at peace or people who have low self-esteem, we're told, do not love themselves. In fact, um, some some people peddling Scripture, trying to wed this together, try to make it be that the reason our relationships are failing or we do not love ourselves. I mean, how can I... Love my neighbor as myself if I don't even love myself. You'll see this morning again, we've made this point before, that the Bible assumes we all love ourselves in the way Paul's talking about love. The Bible's view of love is not fundamentally thinking good thoughts or having high opinions of. That's not the way we love ourselves. The way we love ourselves, we're going to see, is if you're cold and you have a jacket, you put it on. If you're hungry and you have food, you eat it. I've never met anyone who had such low self-esteem. I'm starving, but you know what? I don't deserve food. I'm cold, but you know what? I've disappointed myself so much, I think I should just be cold. I've never seen that person. I've never met somebody, no matter how low their self-esteem, that they don't take the best parking space if it's available. Right? These are the ways Scripture assumes we love ourselves. You may be entirely disappointed with yourself, but you take the biggest slice of pizza when the guy behind the counter asks you which one you want, right? You, no, say right. It's okay. That might just be me. Um, but, that, but does that make sense? This is what the Bible is assuming. So think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Which pictures loving your neighbor as yourself. What happened? There's a guy who's bloodied, he's beaten. He puts the man on his donkey. Because would you, after all, use your own transportation to get to the hospital? Of course you would. If you were mugged and beat up, you wouldn't say to yourself, I don't know if I deserve to drive my car to the hospital. You would hop in your car and drive as best you could to the hospital. And you would use your money to pay the medical bill for your relief. That, that's the picture, the parable Jesus tells to illustrate loving your neighbor as yourself. These are the ways we all love ourselves. And that's important to get in line here, or we're going to start bringing in these notions of thinking good thoughts about ourselves, thinking we're decent chaps and all that. That's not what's being in view here at all. So, husbands, love your wives as your own body. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. So that's the first point Paul brings in. He who loves his wife loves himself. Um, Now, there's two reasons why this is true. We, We looked at this last week, right? Well, last time we looked at this passage. What is the project that Jesus is diligently engaged in with his bride? Beautifying his bride. Look back at verse uh, 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Who receives the benefit of the church being presented to Christ in splendor? Well, in part, Christ. The church receives benefit. She's made beautiful. But do you, do you see how J- Jesus Christ himself receives benefit from the beautification project of his church? Likewise, husbands, if you care for, you shepherd, you disciple, you sanctify your wives, she'll receive benefit. God will be glorified, but brother, you will benefit as well, will you not? The whole point we saw of of Proverbs 31 describing the excellent wife is her husband rejoices. He praises her in the gates. Her children stand up and call her blessed. She's a blessing to all know her. And so one of the reasons why, if you love your wife and this way you're loving yourself, is because you will receive the benefit of this godly and growing Christ-like person. But there's another reason why you receive the benefit, and that is actually where he moves to next, which is she is in fact your body. She is in fact your body. And you receive the benefit in the same way that when I get some antiseptic for my arm and a cut, my whole body receives benefit. That's the rationale where Paul is going on to next. You, you love your wife as your own body, and if you do so, you are in fact loving yourself. By that, that phrase, loving yourself, sets up a, a theme Paul will come back to in verse 33. We'll look at it there, but... The second greatest commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself. There's some ringing echo there. Um, And then Paul goes in to develop his argument further. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Now, you'll notice the word has changed from body to flesh. I think in this context, Paul's using them interchangeably. He starts with body because he needs to make the comparison between Christ and the church, which he's already spoken of as the body of Christ. We are one body. And yet he's going to move to make a connection to Genesis 2, which speaks of being one flesh. So I think the reason why he's shifted terms, and there is a shift in Greek, soma and sarx, body and flesh. But I think in the context here, he means no, nothing different by them. He's using them interchangeably. He's simply shifting to better line up with his next Old Testament quotation. And he makes a statement, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Now, I... I know there are suicides. I know there are people who are bulimic. I know we can have questions. I think all that Paul is saying here is the natural order, people who we think of healthy minds put on cloaks when they're cold, eat when they're hungry, take aspirin when they have a headache, care for their bodies. No one ever hated his own flesh. If someone's acting in a way that we think they hate their own flesh, we think something's not right in their thinking. That's, I think, all he means there is this. Again, it's getting back to what he means by love. It's not everyone's happy with their appearance. Everyone's pleased with how they look. 
No, he goes on to describe it. They don't hate their own flesh, but what do they do? They nourish it. They cherish it. That's the type of love he's now having in view. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And so if, if the picture of imitation before was one of sacrifice, leadership, shepherding, serving, cleansing, now it becomes even more tender, even more intimate. He uses two words, each of which only occur in one other place in the Bible. The first, well translated by the ESV as nourish, means to provide for or to feed or to grow up. The only other place it's used, actually, is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, nourish them, grow them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you see even from this picture here, this is, an, this is tender. This is something parents do with children. Here, the, the husband is loving his wife as his own body, and how does he love his body? He nourishes it. You give yourself nourishment, do you not, if you're able, Right? Your, your opinions of how well you've done or how poorly you've done or some recent sin doesn't enter into it. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. You nourish your body. That's the, the love we have for ourselves, the regard we have for our needs. So what does that mean? It means to provide for and feed means to provide for and to feed, to, to make sure my body has what it needs, right? Um, that, that includes, to some degree, trying to eat a healthy diet. That means when I need medicine, I get medicine. I've recently been sick. And I, I was diligent to give my body what I thought my body needed. I was diligent to seek advice for what my body might need. I didn't begrudge it. I didn't grumble about it. I may have grumbled about the sickness, but I did not begrudge my body for the things it needed. Stupid body needing vitamin B. No, no, I didn't think that, right? I nourished it. I cared for it. I provided for it. It's the same thing with my children, right? The example we see over in chapter 6. I provide the things needed. Husbands, love your wives this way. You're providing for what your wife needs. You're ministering it to her so that she grows up. You're giving her what she needs. And part of that's going to be investigating what she needs. Her physical needs, her emotional needs, her spiritual needs. Paul will even look into her physical needs in a different sense in 1 Corinthians 7. That's not where he's going here. But it's a full-orbed picture of what does my wife need? Because I'm nourishing her, providing for her, feeding her. And it's an intimate picture. The only other place it's used is of a father to children. And the second description he uses is cherish. Literally, the Greek means to keep warm. To keep warm and comfort. The only other place this passage, this word is used is 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Listen to the intimate language here. We, Paul describing his ministry among the Thessalonians, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care, there's our word, of her own children. This is gentle, this is intimate, this is caring, this is comfort. 
This is not something you can do, man, with a cold, dispassionate, I do my duty. I go out and I work and I provide. You're cherishing your wife. Cherishing your wife. You're figuring out what she needs, what good things she hungers and yearns for. You're trying to provide them. You're, you're comforting. You're keeping her warm. These are, these are tender words. You may be afraid after Paul speaks so plainly and so simply about the submission that the husband could domineer. And Paul's instruction makes it clear. What is he to do with his authority? He's to serve. He's to love. He's to cherish her. And now we get the second comparison. First, you see how you do that with your body, right? If you're cold, you put clothes on. You take care of your body. You, you cherish your body. When some part of you is hurt, what do you do? You limp. Why do you limp? The rest of your body is trying to protect the hurt foot. That, that's what the purpose of limping is. The rest of your body is trying to take weight off the hurt limb because you cherish your body. When you smash your thumb with a hammer, you, you baby it, right? You don't just say, oh, stupid thumb. You cherish and nurture. This is the way the Bible assumes we all love ourselves. Love your wives that way. So the first comparison is, is as you love your body, but now Christ comes back in as the example. Just as Christ does the church. And so just pause and, and think about this wonderful reality. Christ does these things for us as well, does he not? He sustains and nourishes his church. I want to read a quote to you from a commentator, Honer, summarizing this activity that we've seen in Ephesians already. Speaking of Christ's work for his church, he redeemed it in chapter 1, 7 to 12, and 2, 1 to 10. He sealed this bride, 1, 13 to 14. He empowered it. 1, 19 to 23. He brought it into one body, 2, 16. Filled it with all God's fullness, 3, 19. Gifted it, 4, 7 to 16. And loved and sanctified it. Even with all its imperfections, Christ nurtures and takes tender care of his body, the church. Christ did not give birth to the church and leave it stranded. He nurses her with the warmth of his love and the power of so that and power, so that she will be able to cope in the world. Christ, as head of the church, is not only a ruler or authority, and he is, but also the source of sustenance by which she is nurtured. In fact, turn back to chapter 4. I think we see a clear picture of this activity of Christ. When Christ ascended, he gave gifts to his bride to equip her for the work she needed to do. He was mindful of what she might need, and he abundantly supplied. Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He descended as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for what? 
the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. How does Christ nourish his bride? He gives her gifted men to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, which is building up his body. Christ is actively and intimately engaged in the nurturing of his body. He is providing what we need. He is superintending the project. And we see it working clearly in verse 15 and 16. Again, the body language is being used. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ is actively, passionately involved in the nurturing of his bride. But also think of that other language, the keeping warm, the comfort. I know you know this passage, but one of my, one of my most dear passages that I find so much comfort from is Hebrews 4. We do not have a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Precisely when I most need God's grace, which is when? When I'm sinning, when I've fallen. I most need God's grace when I've been unfaithful. I can boldly come to Christ for help, for compassion, because I have a sympathetic high priest. Husband, your wives should feel the same way. When she's in trouble, when she needs help, when she's messed up, you should be the first person she wants to come to. Because you're imitating Christ's compassion and tenderness. You're modeling his long-suffering and forgiveness. That's, That's what's in view here. Christ absolutely does this. And the reason, and Paul now brings in the theological point, is because we are members of his body. Because we are members of his body. Notice, by the way, that Paul is now smuggling himself in here. I think this truth is so wonderful. He, he wants to put himself in the group. He goes from speaking of husbands, third persons, they, he, to we. We are members of his body. We are members of the body of Christ. That is not just a metaphor. Paul's going to bring the mystery of marriage out to make it clear. That is not just a metaphor at all. And just pause and consider the same long-suffering and patience you have with yourself. Even for some body part that, that ails you consistently. You don't get tired of it the 57th time your shoulder hurts. The fact that it hurts may provoke you, but you don't treat your shoulder with any less care. I've been caring for for five years. You know what? I'm done. Let it hurt. No, no. Christ cares for his body in the same way. We can come again and again for help. We can come again and again for food, again and again for comfort, again and again for forgiveness because Christ cares for his body the same way. That is a glorious truth. It's another reason why... Unbelievers can be married. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It's given to all peoples. And we can celebrate it. We can witness it wherever it's done rightly. But only Christians can understand truly what marriage is about. Because marriage is a reflection of these things. Marriage is a reflection of these things. So husbands, love your wife as your own body. 
imitate that same self-love we all have, and also know that Christ is acting in the same way to his body, his bride, the church. But Paul now takes it a step further, and now things get really deep and marvelous as we move on to understand the mystery of marriage. Now, Paul quotes a familiar passage in Genesis chapter 2. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. I'll read to you Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you remember, in the creation week, in Genesis chapter 2, God has declared all manner of things good, very good, and now for the first time in the account of Genesis, we come to something that is not good. This is before the fall. Here's something that is not good. Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And then he puts the man to sleep, takes a piece of his side, forms a woman out of it, brings it to him. And then in verses 23 and 24, Adam seeing her says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here is the creation of marriage. And notice a few things. This was God's idea. Adam is passive. He's put to sleep. God is acting. God is the one who sees something is wrong. God is the one who takes the initiative. Marriage is not, and this is important as we live in a culture that's confused about marriage, marriage is not something we came up with. Marriage is something that's been given to us. And we can receive it or we can reject it, but we cannot truly remake it. We can pretend to. It's just not marriage that we're doing when we do that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, for those of you who have gone through premarital with me, this is a great summary passage for describing what is a marriage. Marriage has three aspects to it in this passage. The therefore almost certainly is Moses speaking at that point. It's possible Adam speaking prophetically, but I think from Genesis, I'm talking about Genesis, Moses the narrator speaking to the people of Israel on the plains at Mount Sinai, is telling them, this is why, because of what God did with Adam and Eve, this is why we marry. It, it doesn't ultimately matter, but I think it's Moses at that point. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. So when I do premarital with the men, the three aspects, um, I got this from my pastor, John Street, but the blank here is to leave, to cleave, and to weave, to leave, to cleave, and to weave. So the first phrase is to leave his father and mother. Now, the significance of this is missed on us. Because if I were to ask most of you, when did you move out from your home? When did you leave living with your mother and father? Most of you, the answer probably would not be when I got married. Right? Right? So that first part doesn't ring too true with us. We've got plenty of reasons. I leave my mother and father because I go to college. I leave my mother and father because I got my first apartment with my friends, my first job. I want to start my life. 
that that's not the pattern God said. Let me be clear. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying there's something that that's not the original design. And I think that may partly explain why our marriages and relationships can have trouble. God's design originally, when things aren't broken and things quickly become broken, he's got another chapter in Genesis and things start breaking, is you're born into one family and you remain in that family and you leave only to begin a new family. There's never a part where you're just on your own. Now with the fall, just due to orphans and death and sickness, of course, that pattern's broken. So I'm not saying it's wicked. I am saying we've drifted further and further from the pattern, so we miss this. But understand, there is one thing in the first instance that ends that relationship. I would die for my children. If someone tried to come and take them from me, I would fight to the death for them. I likely will live long enough to come to a day where I send them out and give them away. Why? How could that be? On the one hand, I would fight for them, defend them, there will come a day where, I hope, I will rejoice to give five of them away. It's not today, no. But because marriage is the one thing greater than that. Marriage supersedes even the familial bond of parent and child, right? That's massive. How great a thing is this? Entity that God has created, that it can dissolve a family. That whereas previously I would fight to the death lest someone take my daughters, my sons from me. They would leave. And so for this reason, give you an idea of the importance, the sacredness of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And here we get the formation of a new family. And again, notice you're going from one family to another. And it's difficult. I think one of the fruits of us having these sort of single years out of the home is we're just used to living our own way. We're used to putting the towel on the rod the way I would put the towel on the rod and putting the toothpaste right. The... And then so then when I get married, I, I, I'm a sinful person. My wife's a sinful person. We've got to learn to start serving and preferring each other. It would be a little easier if you're going in one unit where you're having to prefer people and serve people and compromise and make things work and move to now a new relationship where you're doing the same thing. That's just an observation. And then we get to the, the height of the profundity. The two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. The weave. Somehow in the marriage act, the wedding, the consummation, and the life that comes out of it, in a real, this is not just metaphor, in a real and profound way, the husband and wife become one. There's the creation of a unified identity. I want you to turn up Mark 10 for a second. God does a work in marriage, and it's mysterious and it's inscrutable of oneness. Let me, let me ask you a question while you turn here. What is the consistent reason... This may seem like a strange question. Jesus doesn't like divorce. He opposes divorce. What is the reason he gives for why? What's his rationale? It is consistent. He gives the same answer every time. And you and I might be tempted to think divorce is wrong. Forsaking your spouse is wrong because you're breaking your oath. You're breaking your covenant. That is true. 
Malachi speaks of divorce as wicked from that angle. That is not the rationale Jesus gives. That's not what he's most concerned about. It's true. I think he'd amen it and affirm it. That's not the reason he gives. Why does Jesus oppose divorce? What's his rationale? Look at this. This is marvelous. 10-2. The Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He's quoting our passage. The two shall become one flesh. Then Jesus adds in, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What is Jesus' reason for opposing divorce? God did a work of oneness when you married. How dare you blaspheme it? Treat it lightly and try to tear it apart. Do not think one flesh, that oneness, is just a metaphor. It's the consistent reason Jesus gives for why he opposes divorce. So the man leaves his mother and father. He joins together, cleaves to the glues together with his wife. And in that condition, they become one and They may participate in that as well, but God is active, and something holy happens. And Jesus, in every instance that I'm aware of, says, how dare you take that lightly? How dare you try to undo that? Which is, again, why we only can recognize and celebrate marriages where we believe God is making two one. And if for whatever reason you don't think God would do that because of some twisting and perversion of marriage, then it's not a marriage. That, that's, the, that's the pattern for marriage. That's, that's what it means to be married. It's to leave your mother and father, to cleave to your wife and become one. And that oneness is so real that my relationship with my wife can affect my prayer life. Listen to 1 Peter 3.7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. My oneness with my wife is so much that if there's friction and, and, and conflict between us, God, in some senses, is dealing with us as a unified pair. It's going to affect my prayer life. So that is the divine institution of marriage. Now Paul is going to say something new. So this, just from reading Genesis, we could know. It's the divine intention of marriage. The divine intention of marriage. And Paul says something absolutely profound. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Pause, we've got to define our terms. What does Paul mean by mystery? And again, this isn't a whodunit. This isn't Sherlock Holmes. In Paul's use of the term consistently in Ephesians, he uses the term in, in chapter 1, verse 9, the mystery of God's will. But just turn back to chapter 3 briefly. You, you'll see how he uses it. A mystery in Paul's thinking, what he means by mystery, is something previously hidden, now revealed. Something previously hidden, now revealed. You couldn't have figured it out on your own. It needed to be revealed. That God was going to send his son 
We knew he was going to send the Messiah, who in some sense is God's son, but, but the gospel, the Gentiles being included into one body, Paul calls that a mystery. Look at chapter 3, verse 3, speaking of his own apostleship. How the mystery is made known to me by revelation. It required that God reveal it to him. As I have written briefly, when you read, read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So when Paul talks about a mystery, he's about to tell us something we couldn't have known about Genesis 2 before he speaks. This is not something you could get from your study of Genesis. Now, he's not changing the meaning of Genesis. I do think he's adding to it. Genesis 2 did mean, here's, here's what defines a marriage. Here's why people marry. It still means that. But there's a mystery that's revealed here in Ephesians chapter 5. What is that? I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is telling us, as he reveals this mystery, this thing previously hidden but now revealed, that Genesis 2 is speaking about Christ and the church. That's profound and jaw-dropping. Profound and jaw-dropping. Remember, I read to you Genesis 2.18. It's not good that man should be alone. And I think we, I know I certainly did, used to assume that the not good is not good for man. Poor Adam. He's so lonely. There's nobody fit for him. All the other animals. As if... Existing in a sinless world, in perfect fellowship with God, Adam's like, well, this is nice, but I'm still a little lonely. No. What's not good? God's purposes, God's glory. It's not good for, towards those things. When God looks at Adam and sees that there's not a helper fit for him and says it is not good, I would take it to mean what I intend to accomplish through him, the glory I intend to bring myself, And what I intend to do with and through him is incomplete. It is not good. And so he made Eve for him. It means then that marriage, first and foremost, exists to picture Christ in the church. I can think of three big umbrella purposes for marriage. Marriage is to provide companionship for humans and aloneness. Again and again in the Old Testament, it's the wife of your youth, your companion. And, and I think that tends to be the primary thing we get excited about for marriage. Companionship, intimacy, fellowship. That's a good thing. That, that's a true purpose for marriage. It's good, and it's good to desire it. The second primary reason Scripture gives for marriage is to, to populate the earth, to create children, godly offspring. Malachi, again, deals with that, or God's initial a blessing to the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. But above and beyond those two primary purposes for marriage is something even more profound and great. It's to picture Christ in the church. And, and this is, is stunning. And, and here's, the, here's the significance. We can be tempted to think that the human things are the real things, and then God is just coming along, and he's, we got big words for this, anthropomorphic. It's to speak of God in a human way. And so, you know, God's sort of like Christ in the church is kind of like marriage. No, marriage is kind of like Christ in the church. That, that's the reality. I'm going to read one more quote to you, um, this one from Ben Merkel. 
Um, no, wrong page. There we go. Um, Just as the first Adam was joined to his wife and they became one flesh, so also the last Adam is joined to his bride, so that they are one with him. Note that Paul's argument moves from Christ and the church um, as the pattern after which human marital relationships are patterned and not vice versa. In other words, God in the garden already knew what he intended to do in redeeming a people for himself. Before the fall occurred, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. God chose us for redemption before time. So this is not God's response. God knows how the story is going to go. He's the author of the story. And God in his goodness and gracious creates an institution so that when he came to reveal further and further his will and his purposes, there would be metaphors and pictures and institutions that would be in place that he could use to help us understand which means, the next blank, that we might better understand the love of God in Christ. Why does marriage exist? So that all of us, not just married people, but all of us might better understand, see, and know the love of God in Christ. I mean, three weeks ago when we studied this, we looked at Ezekiel 16. We get this prolonged picture of, of the Lord God redeeming his bride, and he comes along and he finds her thrown out in the field without her umbilical cord cut, and he cleanses her and he rubs her with salt, and he comes by when she's a grown woman, and he covers her with his garment, he enters into a covenant with her, he marries her, he beautifies her, he gives her gifts. Marriage exists so that when God is trying to explain through the prophet what the beauty and goodness of fidelity and peace with God is like, it's, it's kind of like that. And marriage also exists so that when God wants to describe to Israel how awful and wicked is their sin and their faithlessness, he can say, it's like you're a whoring wife. That's what it's like. These images exist so that God can better explain the highs and lows, the beauties and the horrors of covenant faithfulness and covenant unfaithfulness with him. Turn, turn to one other one. Go to Hosea chapter 2. Another example where God again and again uses this picture of marriage to describe, to help us understand better what it's like to be in covenant with God. There we go. Hosea chapter 2. Now first God sends Hosea out to model this theatrically as it were. Although for Hosea, it was more than theater. Here's a, here's a life verse people don't quote. Go marry a wife of whoredom. People don't name and claim that one. But Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So we've seen the picture of Hosea going and buying her back from slavery and her unfaithfulness. And then she deserts him again, and he goes and he buys her back, and he brings her back. And then in that light, he says, no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall remember, be remembered by name no more. 
And I'll make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I'll make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. God can explain to us what he plans to do for Israel despite her faithlessness, despite her wanderings. He will bring her back. He will redeem her. He will enter. And it's something like Hosea's relationship with Gomer. It's something like that. And we can better understand the love of God in Christ. We can better understand the gospel because marriage exists. That's what Paul is saying. God created marriage. Not only for this purpose, but primarily for this purpose that we might see and know. This is, again, why if you're not a husband or a wife, this is a useful study for you. Because you know husbands and wives. And so you, too, can learn from this. Paul, quoting Genesis 2, we can turn back to Ephesians now. Paul, quoting Genesis 2. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God set that in place, set that up that long ago so that in the fullness of time he could reveal his will and there would be metaphors, pictures, models in place that he could draw upon to better explain, to better describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brings us then to verse 33. Paul ends his aside with that word, however. I think that's how he brings it back to his thought. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. We're going to sing our closing songs. So I've got to move quickly here. Um, so, the summary for the husband. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Now, that's probably the closest replication to the second greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Here, it's love your wife as yourself. And if you stop and think about it, I think this makes sense. Husbands, who is your closest neighbor? Your wife. Your wife is your closest neighbor. So what Paul is saying, and the reference there is Leviticus 19, but we don't need to look that up, is that your wife is your closest neighbor. Therefore, how you love your wife... In large respects, is how you fulfill the second greatest commandment. This isn't something you can pass over. As if somehow I'm going to do, I'm going to love my neighbor, just, just it's, it's a pain to love my wife. Um, I'm going to do great things for God, but my marriage is out of sorts. No. You love your wife as your own body. You love your wife as yourself. And so, nothing could be more important, husbands. This is the second. Upon this, all the law and the prophets hang. This and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That, that is what God has called you to. The love as defined by Paul is sacrificial. It's cleansing. It's shepherding. It's discipling. It's nurturing. It's tender and cherishing. And it's how you love your neighbor as yourself, ultimately. 
And then he reiterates the wife's fundamental command, bringing this all together. The wife, in the first instance, he's told her to submit. Now it's respect. So you get this, this combination of submission and respect. To order yourself under the will of another, to yield your will to another, and to do it with respect and honor, not begrudgingly, not standing up on the inside. And you can see, I hope, that when both parties embrace this, it's a beautiful picture. The wife is aligning herself under her husband's will, her husband's authority. She's yielding it. She's giving honor to him. And he is not ruling over her as a tyrant, but he's washing her, he's cleansing her, he's feeding her, he's building her up, he's cherishing and nourishing her, he's sacrificing for her, as Christ did for the church. That's, that's the picture of marriage that the Scripture puts forward. Now, it's difficult when, especially if you're married to an unbeliever and only one person is engaged in this activity, but again, because of what Christ has done and his faithfulness, we must be faithful as well to the best of our ability to fulfill these roles. This is our instructions. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You want to know if you're filled with the Spirit? This is, this is where you want to check. Because this all comes out of being filled with the Spirit. And speaking and singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do I submit to Christ? Like this. Husbands, like this. Wives, like this. Next week, we'll look at what Spirit-filled children look like. But now I'd like to call the worship team up as we celebrate the reality that marriage is only a picture of, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our closing song is, I believe, the gospel song, Carrie. Well, please stand as the worship team comes up, and we will celebrate that gospel.